Have you ever done something dumb that you wished you could uh, take back or do over? I have. A lot of times. And today, I am feeling a little bit, I guess, trusting of all of you. I'm going to share one of the things that I did that was really dumb, as long as you promise to keep it in the room here with all of you. I trust you on this. But uh, it w- this happened back when I first became um, a homeowner and learning how to take care of the yard. And so what happened was I was going to put down the final fertilizer application uh, for the year, which was like late September, early October. And as I got the bag out and the spreader out, which was made of plastic, I noticed that part of the spreader, one of the pieces broke. And so the spreader didn't work. And what I normally would do in that circumstance is probably knock on a neighbor's house, ask if I could quick borrow their spreader, but none of our neighbors were around. It was in the evening. I wanted to get this done before the next day, and so um, this is where the dumb part came in. I put gloves on my hands. I opened up the bag and thought, you know, God gave me two hands. I can just spread the fertilizer on my own. And uh, so it was kind of like, think about someone going down a parade route, throwing candy to kids along the... That's kind of what it looked like as I was walking through my yard, fertilizing it with my hands. Now, some of you are like, well, what's the problem? He was wearing gloves. Others of you, like, you know what the problem is. I learned what the problem is, is that fertilizer has this ability to make grass greener and grow when spread correctly. But when not spread correctly or evenly, it has this, uh, well, power to kill grass. And so I actually learned of this then the next spring. As the snow melted and the grass started to green up, there were stripes of dead grass across most of my lawn. It looked like my my yard and a a tiger had a baby because it was like tiger stripes all over the yard. Pretty embarrassing, a hard thing to kind of, you know, cover up and not let your neighbors know about because they all they all saw it. It was really dumb. Now, do you know what would be even dumber? If the next time my fertilizer spreader broke, I did the exact same thing. Which which didn't happen, by the way, but that would be even dumber than doing it the first time. You see, when it, when it comes to, to life, you may have dumb, done dumb things, but God gives us opportunities through life to learn from those things. He wants us to learn, whether it's, it, it's good things or, or difficult things, mountaintop days, valleys, There are these opportunities to to learn from the things in life and to do better or to do differently as we move ahead. It leads us to our first fill-in for today. I think just a great reminder for all of us that life is filled with opportunities to not just experience things, but by God's grace and with his power and strength to, to learn and to grow. This is one of the reasons why, these learning opportunities, why people tend to get wiser as they get older, because they've experienced things, and they understand things better, and then, God willing, they make 
different decisions or have different focus. God gives us these opportunities, even in the midst of the dumb things we do, to learn and to grow. Now, I want you to hold on to that for just a second because we're going to come back to it. But at first, we are at the end of this series where we're taking a look at this Old Testament figure named Jacob. He lived about 1,800 years before Jesus. And for those of you who have been with us throughout the series, you know that if we were looking for someone in the Old Testament to sort of learn from and to follow because of all the great heroic faith things they did in their life, we picked the wrong person. That was not, generally speaking, Jacob's story. Jacob was someone who probably <laughs> would have spread fertilizer on his yard with his hand. Not really. But he's a guy who did a lot of dumb things. He did a lot of things that I'm sure over the course of his life he wished he could have taken back or done differently as he suffered the consequences. Now, today we are looking at Jacob and how he dies. He's 147 years old. And what we're going to find today as we work through some of these words is that Jacob is a man who, as he went through life, he learned and he grew, even through the dumb things that he did. And we, 3,800 years later, get a chance to, to learn and to grow from his experiences as we read about these words. So last week, we left off where Jacob had traveled from Haran back to Israel, the promised land, and he returned to that place called Bethel. Today, as I already mentioned, we're going to look at Jacob's death. So did Jacob's death happen right after the Bethel account? Actually, not even close. There was probably about 40 years in between his return to Bethel and his death. And there's most of that time frame, a lot happened. Most of it centered around that in-between time around uh, his, his favorite son. His name is Joseph. Not like Joseph, the father of Jesus, but Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors. And Joseph is a, is a guy that you could have an entire message series on his life, and we've done that before. Maybe we'll do that again someday, a series on Joseph. But I think it'd be good for me to give you just a quick synopsis of his life. So Joseph was the son that was favored by Jacob. And his brothers, if you might recall this, was jealous of that and how he was continually favored by his dad, their dad. And so they decided to do something about it, and they sold him to some Egyptian slave traders. But they told their father, Jacob, what? They told their father that Joseph had died by an animal while shepherding. Well, Joseph goes to Egypt. He ends up being a slave and then a prisoner for about 13 years. And then in just one day, only something that could happen by the hand of God. Joseph went from being a prisoner to being the second most powerful person in all of Egypt and really in all of the world. And because of Joseph's new status as an Egyptian leader, and this is where it dovetails with, with Jacob's life again, 
When there was a famine in the area, Joseph was able to invite his family to live in Egypt. They were reunited. And so at the time of Joseph's or Jacob's death, Jacob's not living in Israel. He's now living in Egypt. And as he begins to recognize that his time on earth is coming to an end, what he does was very customary back then, and I think we still do this a little bit today. He, he gathered his, his boys. He gathered his family with him. And he gave blessings to all of the boys. But what we're going to look at specifically is some special blessing that he gave to two, two boys named Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis chapter 48. Sometime later, Joseph, who at the time, again, was the second most powerful person in Egypt, was told, your father is ill. So he took his two sons, his two oldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. And I I just pause there for a moment. This is more just a little bit of color to the moment. Uh, You can see the love of a father here for his son. He's starting to get weak. He knows he's going to die, but he hears Joseph's in the room and he, he rallies his strength and sits up. Verse five. Now then, he says to Joseph, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours, Joseph, but in the territory they will inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. So what Jacob is saying, and it's a little bit weird, but what he's saying is, Joseph, your two oldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, I'm going to adopt them, and they're going to be considered like my kids. And where this kind of plays out, first of all, is that when it comes to the inheritance that Jacob would give out to his family, he would then treat Manasseh and Ephraim as his own. And so Joseph, with his two sons, Joseph then would receive essentially a double portion of the inheritance. He would be treated kind of like the the oldest son typically would be treated by receiving this, this double portion. This also explains why, and some of you asked this question throughout the series, why when it comes to the tribes of Israel and the territories that eventually would happen when it comes to the, the division of territory of Israel, that Joseph doesn't follow up. There's no or doesn't show up. There's no territory of Joseph. You look at this list here of all of the different sons. Next slide. And and what would happen to be all the different territories in Israel, you don't see Joseph. There's no territory of Joseph. But what do you see? Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Joseph comes, Jacob says, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to be considered like mine, which means you're going to get a double portion of the inheritance. And then it gets a little bit strange. Now, Israel's, remember, that's another, Jacob's other name. Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. 
Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. He thought Joseph was dead. And now God has allowed me even to see your children. Verse 12. Then Joseph removed his boys from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground, which is a very interesting moment because remember, Joseph is the second most powerful person in the world and he's bowing in front of his father Joseph, or Jacob in respect. Joseph took both of them, the boys, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left and Manasseh, the older one, on his left towards Israel's right hand and brought them close to them. Now, here's what's going on right now, is that when it comes to the blessing of the two boys, Joseph wanted the older one to be at Jacob's right hand because getting the right hand blessing was better than getting the left hand blessing. Over and over again throughout the Bible, we see a a special, I would say, position of power, and it's always on the right. Um, Sorry, lefties. Uh, The truth of the matter is that for the vast majority of the world, even back then, the, the strong side for people, the strong arm for the vast majority of people was the right hand. And so when it came to this blessing, Joseph's like, okay, Manasseh, you're older. You need to be at dad, grandpa's right hand and Ephraim at the left because Manasseh, you're going to get the better blessing. Verse 14. But Israel, Jacob, reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn which is really weird. In fact, Joseph was a little bit confused by this. He thought maybe that Jacob couldn't, because he couldn't see right, that he was just confused and thought that Manasseh happened to be on his left. Verse 17, so Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head and Joseph was displeased he must have had a favorite as well, or at the very least, wanted the older one to get the better blessing. So he took hold of his dad's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. So Joseph wasn't happy with Jacob. He thought Jacob was getting it wrong. And if you've been following with us throughout this series, like there is so much in this series and in Jacob's life that had to do with the blessing and the right person and, and all of those things to get the inheritance, to get the blessing, to get the, the double portion. There's just a lot going on. What's the deal with all of it? Well, l- let me put it this way. Every culture has certain ways to assign value to people. And in that culture, uh, the, the people who are assigned the highest value, I'm not saying this is right, I'm just telling you this was cultural, was males over females, was the older over the younger. Um, if you were a female, the high value was put on those women who were able to have children. And the more children you had, especially the more sons you had, the more valuable you are considered by that culture and that society. 
Every culture has certain ways to assign value to people. Inherent value. How about this culture? Is it how many children you have? I think in some ways it's like the opposite. How few children might you have, right? What are the things that this culture assigns value to? Wealth, success, connected to that probably where you live, what neighborhood, on a lake, not a lake, what your boat looks like, do you have a boat? Graduating from the right school, uh, the right ACT score. Here's a big one. This was true about Rachel and Leah. It's still true today. The culture assigns a lot of value in how a person looks. So still today, we see that there are some just inherent ways that culture assigns value to people. And Jacob, he, he had gotten caught up in that as well throughout his life. But, but as he was nearing death, he showed Joseph that he wasn't confused or couldn't see straight as he did one of these. Verse 19, his father refused to change his hands and said, I know. My son, Joseph, I know. I know what I'm doing. I'm not getting this wrong. He, too, meaning the older Manasseh, will become a people, and he, too, will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. One of the things that Jacob learned throughout his life is while there are cultural norms... And this is something that I want you to take to heart today too, because it might be exactly what you need to hear today, is that your value is not determined by what culture says is valuable. And that's a very, very hard thing to navigate because there are so many voices that we hear every single day, much more than you hear from your pastor or the Bible, it seems. The the quantity, the, the volume of these voices telling you what it looks like to be valuable or what it looks like to be successful or what you need to be, do, or look like in order to be valuable. Those voices are so loud. But it's so important to remember that sometimes we put or find our value in things or assign or take on value that really, well, we shouldn't be worrying about at all. That in fact, in some ways, we forget about our value, which makes me think about something I I read about recently. So in the, the 1980s, there was this uh, lady who went to a garage sale in London. And she bought some costume jewelry. It was a gaudy costume jewelry ring. It uh, looked like a big diamond. In fact, here's a picture of it. And so for 30 years, she wore this costume jewelry gaudy ring just about every day. 
she would lay it on her desk during lunch or while she was typing. She, uh, well, she didn't treat it with much value. It's costume jewelry. It cost her $13. Well, in 2017, she found out it wasn't costume jewelry. It's a 26-carat diamond. <laughs> yes, right? $3.3 million at the latest appraisal is what it was. And for 30 years, she had a treasure on her finger, but she didn't value it. She had a, a treasure right there with her, but she didn't recognize how valuable it was. She didn't understand the true value of what she had. Do you? Do you understand how valuable you are? It's not how much you make. It's not what you look like or the talents you have. It's not what culture says about you. It's not what order of birth you are or what gender you are or what culture you come from. Or Your value comes from Jesus. Do you know how much he paid for you? It makes $3.3 million look like nothing. He gave up his life. He views each one of you as an amazing treasure that he was willing to give up his life for. And culture is going to be ringing in your ear all the time. But I, I want you to understand this, our next villain, that we are not the products of our power and strength. Our value is not found in some uh, inherent cultural paradigm. We are the products of God's Grace, And as Jacob does one of these, he's going across or against cultural norms. And I think in the long run or in result is he's teaching us something. He's teaching us something about just, well, where value comes from. And it's not always what culture says. So as he gives this blessing, or as he does this, he gives a blessing. And let me read those words now, verse 15 and 16. So then he blessed Joseph. In context, he blessed Joseph's sons and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel, capital A, angel of the Lord, reference to Jesus, the, uh, the son of God, who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. Jacob looks back at his life and he says that God had been his shepherd all of his life to that very day. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles, even just a little bit, you know that this imagery of God being a shepherd. It's all throughout scripture. Do you know who the first person to talk about that, God being a shepherd is? I bet you didn't know that until today. Jacob. Jacob is the one who started this idea that God, by God's inspiration, of course, but that God is the shepherd. 
And what does that make you? We're the sheep. And every time we come to these types of, uh, this type of illustration of God the shepherd, we the sheep, it's always important for us to recognize this is not a compliment. You know what's the worst? is when you're being insulted and you don't know it. <laughs> so I'm going to let you know. It's kind of an insult, a little bit. No NFL team will ever name their mascot the sheep. Sheep can't protect themselves. They can't take care of themselves. They can't feed themselves. If sheep get away from the shepherd or the flock, you know what happens to them? They die. There are no herds of wild sheep anywhere in the world. They need help. They're dumb. Enough said. Right. Dumb sheep. Jacob looks at his life, and in this blessing, he says, I look back and I see that God was my shepherd all the days of my life. All the days of my life. Now, Jacob did some pretty dumb stuff, but he also had a really hard life. Let's do a a quick review on this last day of the series. He grew up with a father who didn't love him. That'll mess you up. He spent 20 years with an uncle, what was his name? Laban, who stole, cheated, and manipulated him. Family dysfunction through and through. He was tricked into marrying a woman that he didn't love. And then he finally married the woman that he loved. But that woman died young in childbirth giving birth to Benjamin. His favorite son, which again, not good to have favorites, moms and dads, but this was just the reality for Jacob. His favorite son was sold into slavery, and for 13 years, he thought Joseph was dead. And what does Jacob say? That God was my shepherd all the days of my life. Even in the midst of those things, he sees God as being his shepherd in a life that had a lot of issues. Well, here's the thing about shepherds and sheep, that even when the shepherd is doing the best for the sheep, sheep don't always realize it, they don't always understand it, and in the moment, they don't always know it. In fact, For many years, when I thought about Luke 15 and that parable about the shepherd going out to find the the one sheep that was lost, um, I continually thought about um, this this picture that uh, was at our church when I was growing up. And doesn't, you know, I know it's hard to see from where you're sitting, but like, Literally, that, little, that sheep on his shoulders, it has like a little smile on its face. I don't know that sheep can smile, but in this picture, it's like this little smile, and the, the shepherd looks, you know, content and happy as well. And so I had always pictured this finding of the sheep um, almost similar to maybe when an owner finds their lost dog, 
What happens when you haven't seen your dog for a while? And if they like you, um, they get excited. And so I thought, I pictured like this sheep in this, this parable. They're lost. They know they're lost. They're worried. I, man, I, I hope the shepherd finds me, you know, a little sheep brain. And then when the shepherd comes, that the sheep's excited like a dog. And the sheep runs to the shepherd, jumps in the arms, and the, the shepherd's all excited and, and hugs the sheep and just, you know, triumphantly puts the sheep on its shoulders, his shoulders. But then I read a real shepherd talk about what it's like wrangling a lost sheep. And it didn't look anything like that. Get that picture out of your mind. Because when a sheep is lost, it doesn't know it's lost. And when the shepherd comes after it, its initial reaction is, Leave me alone. And for the shepherd to be able to bring the sheep home, it doesn't run into his arms. The shepherd that I read explained that sometimes you have to use force. Sometimes you have to knock the sheep over, tie up its legs, and while it's struggling, put it on your shoulders. No sheepy smile, okay? In the reality of shepherds wrangling sheep. See, here's the thing. A sheep doesn't feel safe, even when it's being made safe. And a sheep doesn't feel loved, even when it's being loved. And when you and I go through difficulties in life, which you have and you will, sometimes it's hard to understand or to recognize that God in that moment is just being a loving shepherd. And yet Paul writes that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And so as Jacob looks back on his life in the the wisdom of a 147-year-old man, he says, you know what? My life was hard. I caused some of that. But God was my shepherd all the days of my life. He had a plan for me, even in the difficult times. Number three, Jesus is your loving shepherd through all the circumstances of life. And I know it's complicated. There are things that that happen in your life that you wish you knew the reason why. And our reactions sometimes to God in those moments and even after those moments are things like this. I'm angry with you. I'm frustrated with you. I don't understand you, God. God is your shepherd all the days of your life. And one of the greatest places we can be And we're not going to do this perfectly every day. But is in a mindset of not, I'm angry with you, but instead, I trust you, Lord. And how do you know you can trust him? Well, that shepherd didn't just come looking out for you, after you. That good shepherd, he gave up his life for the sheep. Jesus was the good shepherd 
that died for you. And even when we can't understand all that happens in life, what we do know without a shadow of a doubt is his love. It's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross. So, Jacob dies. Jacob, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, we don't have time to go through all the other sons. You can read about it in uh, Genesis 49. Jacob drew his feet up into bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people, Abraham and Isaac, who had went before him. It means he, he went to heaven. He went to be with the Lord. Now, years later, when the writer to the Hebrews is writing about the, the great heroes of faith, here's what that writer writes. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons, each as in Ephraim and Manasseh. Of all the things in, in Jacob's life that this writer could, could mention, he, he mentions this blessing and how he worshiped Jacob did as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now, it's kind of interesting to me. When you read through Hebrews chapter 11, you look at all these people of faith. For most of them, Moses and David and uh, Gideon, and it says the prophets, it, it mentions all of these things, Abraham, that they did during their life that showed their faith. For Jacob, it wasn't what he did with his life. The example of his faith was how he died. What does it say? He died worshiping. He did dumb things during his life. But honestly, all that really counted is how he died. He died recognizing that God gets the glory, that God is the one to live for. And so number four, as we close out our series, you may not want to live like Jacob. I would actually recommend you not living like Jacob in many ways. <laughs> but it would be great to die like him. How? Eyes not focused on the good things I've done or the bad things. Dying, not focused on what I've done at all or what I've said. Dying with the eyes of my heart, focused on that great, 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 great grandson of Jacob named Jesus, through whom I have every reason to have hope. See, for Jacob, and I pray for you, there was grace at the end. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to uh, dig into the word. Uh, we thank you for preserving these words about Jacob and for the opportunity we had to dig into them for the last 10 weeks. Lord, as we learn from Jacob, ultimately I pray that in every week of this series, that ultimately we um, were pointed to your son, way more important, of course, than Jacob, through whom he had peace, through whom he had joy, even at his death, his great ancestor, your son, our Savior. And Lord, as we, we leave this place today, I pray that also that simple word worship would be at 
the heart of what we do, of celebrating you in the good times and also in the difficult ones, and trusting you through the, the moments of laughter and celebrating in the moments of sorrow. We thank you that we do not have to do life alone. And we pray for your presence now until we're with Jacob and all the saints forever. In Jesus' name, amen.